So companies that are good at integrating their acquisitions typically have thought through their governance model really well. And uh, we see, first of all, that they involve the C-suite in any decision-making, more in a steerical kind of setup. But they also have a group of people that really kind of govern the whole kind of integration process. We call that the integration management office. And they cover the planning aspect. They also cover the value creation part of it. But they also look at the more softer side. They think about the cultural integration, they think about the communication part. They think about also the technology and how the IT systems will be the backbone of that future organization. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Successful mergers and acquisitions require more than just a strong M&A strategy and target list. They also demand well-planned execution, communication, and integration. In today's podcast, Cam McKellar, a McKinsey contributor, discusses driving value through M&A with two of our experts. Kenneth Bonner, a senior partner based in Antwerp, leads our merger management work in Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. And senior partner Peter Kenevin, based in Tokyo, is the leader of our Asia-Pacific corporate finance practice. Their conversation was recorded at our 2019 Australia M&A conference recently held in Sydney. Kenneth, how would you advise a client who comes to you and says, look, we're really good at sourcing deals, but something happens along the way and we tend to fall short when it comes to integration? Yes. Well, the realization that execution is, of course, very important in an M&A context. And in essence, it's about three phases and about three objectives. There's a phase about the preparation, which is really before the announcement even, where you create the conditions for success. There's a phase where you plan for the integration, and there's a phase where you execute. And the real objective is threefold. One is to ensure business continuity. Both businesses keep performing, and you have a seamless integration after legal close so that your customers, your employees, keep working without the disruption. The second one is that you deliver on the value by developing the real tangible value creation plans. And the third one is to think through your new operating model and how you will deploy your talent in that new kind of system. Peter, we've heard a lot about programmatic M&A today, which is much more about M&A as a capability as opposed to just doing a bunch of deals. Uh, what steps should companies take to develop that M&A muscle? Yeah. The first step is still having the right M&A strategy and blueprint, which is obviously linked to your corporate strategy. Once you've understood what it is you're trying to achieve through M&A, then that's when you start to think about which capabilities that you need to put in place to build the pipeline and to execute on that pipeline. So uh, if you have an M&A strategy that is predicated on uh, a programmatic approach to many small acquisitions, you're going to need to have the pipeline to do that, and you're going to need to have the governance model uh, and the organizational capabilities to execute. And part of thinking about that is also what you build internally versus how you leverage third-party providers. So you may need to have a certain amount of uh, M&A talent uh, internal to your organization. You certainly will in order to manage the overall pipeline and, and, and make sure that the overall M&A execution roadmap matches the strategy uh, and also looks forward into the integration. Uh, but then you will also have to have the skill to manage a portfolio of advisors uh, in the most efficient way. So, yeah, so let's say a company has a really good long list of potential targets. What do they do now? How do they move quickly? Yeah, so assuming that that long list of targets has been built on the basis of a relatively coherent M&A strategy linked to the corporate strategy, then the important thing is that, you know, you, you have to think of the programmatic deal process as a pipeline. So typically, if you want to take a programmatic approach 
based on you know kind of uh, uh, having having a number of deals each year. Let's say five. You need to look at a pipeline of deals that probably starts with a hundred, because you're going to have a number of pl- of screens that you'll that you'll work through. Right? You obviously you know you don't want to buy every company you look at. That's uh, that's the whole point of diligence. And most of the deals uh, you want to screen. If you're going to screen something out, you don't want to spend six weeks or eight weeks of expensive due diligence and precious time uh, screening something out that is relatively clearly uh, not a good fit. So you need a process where you, where you manage a pipeline. You, you have an initial screen, quick and dirty, outside in, and actually you take out say 50% of the deals you look at. Then you have a more de- a deeper diligence process that ends with an investment committee approving an LOI. Then you move on on and on until you get to you know the actual sort of you know confirmatory due diligence at the last stages. And the point is that you have to have aligned that pipeline with a governance model that enables you to have you know, the right people making the right decisions at the right times so that you don't end up with either deal fever or an endless loop of, of conversations. And, and that means who makes the decision of the initial screen, who makes the decision you know, when, you, when you move closer and closer to the deal. So uh, I, I guess the, the point is you, know, you should take a very rigorous pipeline uh, approach uh, that you can that you can screen deals through, and, and, and that has two benefits. One, at the end of the day, you end up with you know deals that you know have been properly vetted, but also it allows you to look at enough deals uh, without fear of wasting too much time that you actually can have you know uh, the, a yield that makes sense. So it's about taking strategic intent, putting that into a pipeline of hundred or so deals, and then stage gating the governance yeah, process absolutely. to sort of whittle it down. Okay. And is there a certain member of the C-suite who should take ownership and of this? The entire C-suite needs to have uh, some level of ownership. Obviously, you know, your head of M&A, your, your CFO are, are your primary execution engines. Obviously, the CEO uh, has to be uh, aligned and on board for the strategy. And, and the, the whole C-suite has to be integrated into that, uh, or into that and orchestrated into that process. Kenneth, can you give us some specific examples of companies that have actually done this really well? So companies that are good at integrating their acquisitions typically have thought through their governance model really well. And uh, we see, first of all, that they involve the C-suite in any decision-making, more in a steerco kind of setup. But they also have a group of people that really kind of govern the whole kind of integration process. We call it the integration management office. And they cover the planning aspect, they also cover the value creation part of it, but they also look at the more softer side. They think about the cultural integration, they think about the communication part, they think about also the technology and how the IT systems will be the backbone of that future organization. And that group in particular steers every single functional team, whether that's HR or finance or commercial R&D, to make up their plans. And again, those plans cover three topics, business continuity, value creation, and organizational model. And Peter, what about the flip side of the coin? Where do companies often struggle integrating? The biggest problem typically is that they lose sight of why they've done the deal in the first place. So I take you back to the origin of M&A strategy and execution has to be corporate strategy. And typically what what happens is a company will get so focused on doing the deal that they forgot why they were doing the deal, or they'll do a, a transaction in a form that is not consistent with what they were trying to achieve in, in the strategic stage of the deal and therefore is very difficult on the execution side because you're trying to integrate something that is structured to be difficult to integrate. So I think our, our view of this is that you, know, you have to have a sort of a through cycle, 360 degree perspective on the transaction. What is 
the strategic rationale? What does that mean for deal structure? And how does that deal structure need to be articulated in order to enable an integration that then facilitates the strategic objectives. And what we find is that, you know, that gets fragmented. And so companies will, uh, uh, because they get caught up in, in the need to get the deal done, uh, they'll, they'll make a concession on some aspect of structure. They'll put constraints around their ability to go after certain synergies or something like that that then later becomes a very big roadblock to realizing the, the value of the transaction. So that, that would be the, the biggest single. Of course, there are always garden level, sort of garden variety execution challenges that everyone will face. Uh, uh, but, but often the, the, the root cause of, of deals that go wrong is that they've somehow diverged from the strategic intent, uh, either in you know, the, the pricing or the structuring uh, of the transaction. Yeah. So I fully agree with Peter, but I would add the cultural dimension is usually one of the big pitfalls as well. And companies typically think, as we, as we look at the values of both players, if we can just get that right, then we're fine. But let me give you an example. Two players that think respect for people is sort of a top value. But in one company, that means lifelong employment. In the other company, it means every six months you get evaluated. You're asked to leave if you don't perform. With the right kind of support and stuff like that. Both have respect for people, but the way you live it is very different. So you have to go down into what we call the management practices. How do you make decisions? How does performance management work? How do you run a meeting? And it's those kind of day-to-day -day activities that make up the culture and understanding how that works and then deciding together how the new model would actually work going forward is really important to do as well. Yeah. Let's talk about once a deal is done, what role does internal communication play here? So our experience is there's probably three functions that struggle in integration. One is HR, the other one is IT, and the third one is communications. And why communications? They're often not involved in the content or too late. And then secondly, there's a lot of communication that happens at deal announcement. A lot of it happens at deal signing. But what do you communicate in between? Because you can't talk much about the decisions. We would still argue that you need to over-communicate also in that phase. You have to go out there, organize town hall meetings, do meet and greet with the talent on the other side. Because just the fact that you're there, you listen to their concerns, creates a bond. And it's one of the main reasons why talent doesn't run away in an integration because they feel the connection with the new leadership. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I would just cite as an example, I mean, we did a recent integration in, in Japan where uh, there was very big uh, uncertainty uh, on the part of the, the acquired company. And, and actually the head of R&D for the acquirer uh, just made a trip to, to visit, uh, to do town halls at the, at the R&D sites. And it completely changed the, the momentum in, in, in the transactions for him to go and do that. Even though, you know, the discussions were, you know, not so deep because we were still pre-closing. Just, just the fact that, you know, this person had, had come to the various R&D sites and had met with the teams and, you know, had town halls, had dinners. It was a, it was a huge boost. And just, just one point to flag, um, in addition to the internal uh, aspects of that, something that often gets under-resourced uh, is communication with other stakeholders like customers, of course, but also distributors, channel partners. There's a whole universe of other kind of stakeholders in, in, the, in the company who are going to be quite concerned. And, and actually, you know, competitors will take advantage of that if you don't make sure that you get your, you know, the messaging out in a consistent and coherent way that, you know, this is going to be better for everybody. Uh, you'll find that, you know, competitors are out there sort of taking advantage of the rumor mill, uh, poaching your best talent, poaching your distributors. So it's really important to take a kind of holistic view 
uh, of who your, uh, uh, who your stakeholder group is that you need to communicate with and then have, as, as Kenneth mentioned, very consistent messaging uh, uh, that's, that's pushed out on a really uh, proactive way. And let's talk about geographies. Are there particular sectors or geographies where, where deals or integration is more difficult? So I wouldn't necessarily take the angle of different geographies or sectors be, being more difficult or less difficult. I think we typically think about these deals as there's different types of deals. If you, if you buy a, a company because you like the intellectual property that they have, you like the assets, you're going to have a very different situation than if you buy a similar-sized organization which has complementary products and offerings, uh, and you want to do the best of both worlds kind of integration. So it's more that kind of archetype of deal that makes for complexity or less complexity, not necessarily the geography of the sector. I would I would echo that, and just I think there there I, I think of it in two dimensions. One is the archetype of the transaction, and the other is what Kenneth was uh, mentioning earlier about culture. Right? How how close is the cultural, and by culture we mean how decisions get made, how, how what the company really values. So not not not, you know, kind of the superficial sort of cult idea of culture, but really deeply, how does this company operate and how closely do these two companies, you know, align on, on that dimension? You know, the more, the more difference there is there, the more, the more bridging needs to happen and, you know, different types of transactions will create more or less complexity. I think that's a much more constructive and practical way to think about this than, than some kind of superficial view of, of, of geography or culture. Yeah. So once the deal is done, how do you then take an asset and, and fit it into the business case? How do you really engage the leadership? So here's what typically happens. So you've announced a deal. There's a very small group of people that thinks about the preparation, do all the planning. And they discuss for months about what we do, what we're not going to do, best practices to copy, yes or no. So there's a lot of rich discussion going on. Once you close, then that gets communicated as this is a new way of working. And you just expect that the new leadership just picks it up and understands it right away. And obviously they don't, right? So it takes a lot more iteration, a lot more kind of onboarding of the leadership to not only understand what are the strategic priorities, how do we operate as a new kind of company, but also the, the clear management practices, the cultural aspects of that. Because ultimately that new leadership is the one that has to cascade that down to their leaders. And if they don't get it, then the rest of the organization will not follow. And then you risk ending up several years after the integration and still talk about us versus them. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the onboarding, the cascading onboarding is, is kind of the critical process. Uh, and, and, and that's actually typically sort of aligned with the actual kind of um, the, the articulation of the organization at lower levels. So, you, you know, you don't want, you know, the CEO and a, and a couple of people deciding what the L3, L4, L5 looks like under each of the BU heads. You need them to be on board for that. So you have to have a cascading process of not only, you know, onboarding, the, you know, the key people, but also building the organization as you go. So I think, you know, aligning that onboarding and cascading process with, you know, the articulation of the organization at a more granular level is, is, is best practice. Kenneth, Peter, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this podcast is available on the Inside the Strategy Room section of McKinsey.com, where you can also find links to all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our practice website page, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.